Okay, Houston, we've had a problem here. Say again, please. Uh, Houston, we've had a problem. Hi, I'm Andrew Wallace, and welcome to the We've Got a Problem podcast, where each week we explore inspiring stories of struggle, success, and solutions to prevalent problems and how our guests have turned a problem into an opportunity. This week, I'm joined by Noah Healy. He's a professional algorithm developer and recreational mathematician with expertise in game theory and designing marketplaces. Leveraging breakthroughs in game theory from the past few decades, he's developed a patent-pending system to replace traditional commodity markets. Pretty heady stuff, Noah. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me here, Andrew. Absolutely, absolutely. So, I mean, I, this is a little bit out of the box. We talked offline about the fact that I don't usually talk to people who are recreational mathematicians, um, and uh, it, it's it's a little different from my audience. But I thought it would be really something that we would enjoy uh, chatting about because I do think it has applications to to our daily lives and also helping people understand what's going on around them. And, and and be somewhat informative. How did you get into this? How did you get your start? Give us some background. How do you become a recreational mathematician? Well, the the core thing to recreational math is is finding a problem space that you enjoy thinking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and recreational math is far more prevalent than people generally sort of consider. Um, puzzles uh, like Sudoku, Sudoku, ah, Sudoku, for example, uh, are incredibly popular around the world. Um, and even crosswords uh, are, yeah. are to some extent, more logic puzzles than they are word plays. So lots of people get very interested in, in problems of logic or reason or geometry or, or algebra or calculus or all sorts of things. Um, and it is increasingly relevant to the world that we occupy uh, because it turns out that fields of study that were essentially confined to recreational mathematics for most of the last 6,000 years um, are the fundamental building blocks for the internet mm-hmm. and credit cards. And <laughs> yeah, and things that we use that, that we use every day. I think right. and people people misunderstand uh, what recreational anything is. Right, so many things start as I I have an idea. I'm thinking about something. I I'm I'm curious about this. And in a sense, the breakthroughs come from people who are obsessed with a concept and just kind of think about it all the time and 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 figure something out right so you you get into to 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 these situations but but give us some some background about you where did you where did you come from how did you come to design a system for superseding commodity markets so i uh i got out of school uh and started working for internet startups mostly uh and mostly doing back office uh stuff so people were sending out newsletters i wrote the system that would personalize each newsletter and then email it to the person it was going to what i've observed over the decades is that when companies fail it's always the case of the senior management making decisions which turn out to be senseless what I've observed is frequently it is the case that the company, either people or 
rather more often the compute some computer you know file somewhere in the company has information that would demonstrate that that decision is senseless <laughs> um yeah. So the company already knows that it shouldn't be doing what it's doing, but the person making the decision doesn't know that the company shouldn't be doing what they say it should be doing. Right. Yeah. I uh, mean, that's, that's, I, I think we all have uh, times in our daily lives where we've seen this in action, right? Where you go, you know this. So why is this happening? Why you, you this is, you have all this information at your, I assume, at your disposal, and well, apparently not. That assumption, sadly, is often lacking um, because the fact that you know there's a file somewhere that happens to have a line in it that says that you know this is a very bad idea doesn't mean very much because the company has terabytes of right. files and nobody can actually read all that stuff and absorb it and synthesize it. And so you have this situation, um, particularly once you sort of all get out of the same room with each other, where the group knows things that the people who are guiding the group don't know. Um, it'd be like if the way that we designed cars um, critical information about traffic surrounding you was actually, you know, displayed underneath the passenger seat. And yes. so unless somebody was down there looking up, then, then every once in a while you just get blindsided by something yeah. that you couldn't see. Yeah, I, I think that's, that's well, look, systems have been designed that way stupidly. I mean, I, I say stupidly. Uh, no, don't mean to cast aspersions on designers of things. But I think that was one of the nuclear disasters, maybe Three Mile I, Island, right? I had, like, yes, I had training in nuclear engineering. We spent a week going over the Three Mile Island disaster. As it happens, the the control panels that they used were very dense. They didn't have room for everything on the front. And so <laughs> right. the they panel... They put the one on the back. Like, one, the panel one that really mattered. That explained exactly what went wrong during that disaster was located on the back of the machine. And if anybody had chosen to crawl behind the machine and look at that particular indicator, they would have been able to figure out what's going on. But they didn't do that in the heat of the moment. And uh, it was it was put there because it was a thing that was assumed that couldn't go wrong. Right. So the operators at the time assumed that that couldn't be what the error was. And uh, it turned out it was. Yeah. So, I mean, that's those kinds of things. Again, they're all around us. So what do we do about that? How do we fix it? What is the what I I, I mean, we've got a problem, right? And that's the of course the name of my show and we're going to talk about a lot of problems, but I'm fascinated by by the ways that that good meaning people in a sense go wrong. Right? How did we we, we it's not like we, we we're gathering this information. We know we need it. We know that a company needs it. We know that that we're that we're going to need to in, that we're going to need to incorporate this, or it might at some point be important. And yet, it goes away. How do we? What do we do? Well, to to break into sort of where my specialty picks up to get math jargony on this, um, this is a problem of networked consensus. So mm -hmm. you have agents; those are things capable of making decisions or taking actions. So agents would include people, but also computer machines um, and and other other factors, including say customers of the the business as well, potentially or regulators and so on. You have a network. Um, so each of these agents has some set of other agents that they can communicate with. Maybe 
there's some agents that can't communicate with anybody, in which case there's not really anything you can do about that. Like right. if, if nobody's going to tell you what they think, then you can't find consensus with them. So how do you come up with a situation where this entire network is on the same page? Yes. And so the first thing I was thinking about was, well, if, if you're sort of in charge of this network at, it's in your interest for the network to be on the same page. The, this whole thing where you're just saying, you, you know that this information is necessary. That's right. why you're sort of arranging for it to exist. How worth it is it? If you were going to pay the network to join consensus, how could you do that? And that's where I came up with this idea for a game of, I call a negotiation game where individuals in the network could see the game because you write basically a computer program that can talk to everybody because computers can scale like that very easily. Right. Um, and what this computer does is throws out a candidate consensus um, and it says, okay, I think that this is what's going on. And if any of you don't think that this is what's going on, then talk to me and we'll basically have a little bet wager. We'll all integrate your information into what I'm thinking. And then your beliefs as part of the general beliefs will get communicated to everybody mm -hmm. about what's going on. And if you and I happen to disagree about where consensus lies, then basically the two of us can have a little competition where we bid up how much we think we are right until one or the other of us kind of wins. <laughs> and the system essentially absorbs all that, creates the consensus, and based on how that consensus is doing, whoever's operating the system makes the decisions, figures out how valuable this information was in those decisions, pushes that inform that value back into this thing, which then integrates back across. So mm -hmm. um, whatever negotiated settlement we came up with would get divided up, you know, however we negotiated the settlement of whatever we have opinions about. Right. Uh, and the two of us would never have to directly communicate, which means <laughs> that in addition to not having to know about each other or why we think this way, we also don't even both have to be human beings. A, you could have a consensus that's a result of sensor arrays that are spread around, uh, you know, a, a continent or something. Sure. Uh, and sensors could sort of automatically be recalibrated to how valuable they are to the general picture of, of weather forecasting. Um, if, if some sensor is, you know, located on the tarmac of O'Hare, it's just not very valuable for telling you what the weather is actually like in Chicago. Right. Um, and so on. I see implications for this far beyond the area that you've already chosen to kind of focus on, which was commodity markets, right? So, I mean, you could, the, you, incorporating information and, and developing a consensus based on uh, a, a kind of negotiated agreement almost, right? That, that we're starting to come together and, and again, having a game function of it where we, we bid up how much we think we're right and all those kinds of things. I, I see that far beyond uh, commodity markets, but commodity markets are a slam dunk for this. Now, for people who don't know 
what commodity markets are or what a commodity is, you can probably do a better job explaining it than I can, even though I have an economics degree. <laughs> what? Well, yeah. Because you've done more of it. What, 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 so for our listeners who don't know, I mean, they affect our everyday lives, right? They're everywhere. We're, they're all around us. But what is a commodity? What, why do we trade them? Yes. What commodity markets? So a commodity is a product of uniform quality. So sort of probably the most prosaic commodity uh, that people are sort of aware of is the McDonald's hamburger. Sure. Uh, that's a commodity that's only produced by a single company. But one of the advantages of, of sort of smoothing out uh, the quality question is that it simplifies exchange to allow bilateral competition. So just like you don't know where the eggs you buy in the grocery store, like which exact farm they're coming from, the farmer doesn't know who which exact neighborhood is buying those eggs. And so what you get is streaming together from the production side and streaming together for the consumption side. And and it turns what could be hundreds of millions or these days even billions of individual transactions into a unified sort of industry-level bilateral negotiation between buyers and sellers. Yeah. Uh, and by doing that, there are, there are drawbacks in terms of what competition does to margins, but there mm -hmm. are enormous advantages in terms of losing a lot of your marketing and sales costs because right. – farming and and cloth making and logging and mining are all full-time jobs and if you also had to convince people to buy you know steve logs yeah yeah <laughs> this particular corn versus the corn from your neighbor um we would all basically starve to death because yeah. we wouldn't be able to make any food anymore yeah i mean so that's there have been so many kind of faults of commodity markets and, and how they function in the sense that people uh, lately, right, a lot of these things have been in the news, even though you don't think about them, right? Natural gas prices are at an all-time high or have been at an all-time high. My mother had a $2,000 bill recently. The the coffee has gone up. All these things are are, are, are crazy that, that are basically commoditized. Gasoline. What are the specific failures of the, the way that it's priced, right? So the the primary difficulty right now is that the computers have essentially changed the calculus of how the market functions. Um, there's basically people that make stuff. There's people that need to use the stuff. And then there's people with enough money to buffer <laughs> the transactions between those two groups of people. Yes. And all three of those people are necessary and valuable to having a predictable and functioning economy. The problem is that uh, computers aren't equally valuable to all three of those groups in existing market structure. Um, and so what computers have essentially done is made that third group, the, the sort of middlemen group, uh, massively more powerful than anyone could ever hope to become from either of the edge groups. And what that's led to is while individual companies in the, in the financial space have struggled and are struggling, um, 
the entire financial sector as a fraction of national and global economies has actually been growing basically since the 80s. Um, and that's because it's easier and easier for financial players to gain the advantage over the rest of us in the deals that they're cutting. Um, and there's no broad value to those advantages. It's, it's, just, it's just a case of the technology being radically more useful for the kind of thing that they actually do than it is for the kind of thing that the other people do in the marketplace. Right. Uh, and so what we're watching is markets uh, becoming more chaotic and, yep. and uh, more expensive and while there is, has been multiple cases of either fraud or greed exacerbating these instances, at a fundamental level, this is just the way it is. Right. These markets are going to get worse performing and more expensive for as long as we have computers until they're however badly performing and however expensive it takes that they are abandoned and and sort of take our economies with them because <laughs> because trade is is foundational there's there's right. nobody that's got a completely self-sufficient in power and and material and food and clothing and shelter set yeah. up anywhere yeah, yeah. well and then that's i you know, we like to gripe about the prices for things that we as consumers pay and 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 think that there's somebody and there might be. I mean, it, it, like you say, isolated cases of fraud or greed or whatever. But the the fact is so much of what we do is just that's the way it is because we have to do these things. We have to trade. We don't have everything. We don't you know, we've got to allocate scarce resources. Right. That's the study of economics, the allocation of scarce resources. We don't have enough of this. We need some of that. They've got a lot of that. We don't have that. They need something we have back and forth, back and forth. That's the idea, right? So we go along with these things. And, and of course, if I've got a, a thing of, of uniform quality, a, a, a widget X, and, and, and there are a bunch of people with those things here, and a bunch of people want them over there, I, I'm going to sell it to the guy who's going to pay me the most, in a sense, right? It's just going to go there. I'm going to, if right. I can, I will. Yeah, and, absolutely. And I would be stupid not to. <laughs> right. Well, and and the thing is, societies themselves benefit from doing that because mm -hmm. those people that are paying more, you know, the the croissant baker will pay more for flour than the guy who's cranking out Wonder Bread. Right. Um, and if society can withstand it, then we can all eat, you know, right. delicious French pastries <laughs> instead of mass produced. You know, and that's I'm, how how wonderful would that be? Um, I'm ready for the mass produced, <laughs> not mass. Excuse me for the wonderful French pastry utopia that you that you've crafted. So, I mean, I, there's one of the elephants in the room is speculation, and and being that kind of middleman and having some sort of market pricing power or power to 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 manipulate it slightly. I mean, I I I'm, I'm, I hate to use the term manipulation because it's not really really what it is, but to to have an outsized force like you say um to 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 have a, a place where computers are again more valuable to to the middlemen than they are to to either of the edge market players uh, so to speak so uh, how do we do better i mean that that that's <laughs> well that's where that's where my system can step in and fill this gap 
Yes. Because with the way that I'm structuring things around networked consensuses, um, it's possible to distinguish in a way that it's impossible to distinguish from the current market structure, noise from signal. So right now in the marketplace, um, it's less a case of manipulating a market, although that's definitely incredibly prevalent and happens essentially constantly. It's more a case of waiting for opportunities to not have to show your hand. Right. So if, if you think that the market is, is, ought to be going up, what you want to wait for is a lot of stupid people to show up bidding the market down. And that's when you feed in your, your buying things so that the market won't respond and sort of chew up your entire advantage. Yep. So you're basically picking off you know, what you think of as the dummies as 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 your strategy and so you're trying to give away as little as possible and the entire thing turns into a sort of poker game mm-hmm. where you know everybody's just trying to figure out how to lie the most effectively <laughs> and as you might imagine a system where everybody's attempting to lie to each other isn't a terribly efficient system right uh, so in my system what you're doing is you're offering up what your beliefs to be integrated into a a system that will then be replicated across the entire marketplace. So the kind of leverage that right now these speculators need to have very, very deep pockets to be able to access in order to get any kinds of returns at all out of the relatively narrow spreads that exist in these marketplaces instead becomes an intrinsic structure of the marketplace. You're helping every single farmer in the Western Hemisphere. And so you're going to be getting a little bit of the income stream from all the trades that they all engage in. And so your rate of return is significantly higher than really anybody experiences today for good information. At the problem that the errors in your beliefs will get sanded off by other people coming in and fixing them. And so now, instead of trying to figure out how to conceal as much as possible about what you know, now the goal is to reveal everything that's possible and to get rid of any errors in your view of the world, because any attempt to conceal or any error that you make is simply hitting the the return rate that you would get on these investments. Right. Right. Well, I, I, I so I, my, my question then becomes, why are we not doing this? Why, what's the biggest hurdle to adopting your, your model, your system? What, why isn't it everywhere? The biggest hurdle is getting started. Um, the existing markets, uh, the existing markets are operated by companies that, that, have in some cases, uh, like the London Metals Exchange, a few centuries of of backstory, but the market design itself goes back, you know, something like eight hundred years at this point. Right. And it's important to distinguish between the role that the people that run these systems have versus the the creators of the system. One of my things is that they're not the plumbers, and they're not even the plumbing; they're the water. The yeah. Market design is something that's really only started to be chewed on in the last 50 or so years as part of academic disciplines. And in economics, it's actually referred to as market microstructure theory, (laughs) um, because they understand that you could never do anything about the actual way that people trade. What you can do is 
put in a regulation here or or sand off a communication channel there and try to try to tweak things uh on one side or the other so this is this is a major difference from the way that everyone has conducted business for yeah you know a thousand years more or less uh, yeah. and and really much longer than that if you consider the fact that nobody's really ever done this before right so- well I, and i i do also see i mean I just thinking thinking it through as you say it that when markets are somewhat inefficient when there's excess stuff happening that that shouldn't be happening that's also a chance for a lot of people to make money that to, to earn an arbitrage profit and those people might though enmeshed in the system go well this is the way it is and this is where i've got my little sliver and this where is I can- this is exactly what i hear from from most of them um i you you know i've gotten them to to sort of occasionally turn around and take a look and say okay well my income is somebody else's cost and getting rid of that cost would benefit them I've gotten people to admit that. I've never gotten anybody to then make the next step of, therefore, it is a good thing for society in general to eliminate my income. Right. Uh, yeah. And and I've I've received a number of other fairly ridiculous uh, <laughs> counter proposals. Um, one. So before the advent of computers, the ratio between sort of speculative and and deliberative deals, if you will, was somewhere like five to ten to one. Um, in the modern markets, it's more like 40 to 50 to one. Um, and so 97 to 98% of the deals that happen in the marketplace are not for final delivery. And if you look at orders, the ratio of orders to deals has gone from pretty, you know, pretty related to basically totally unrelated, um, (laughs) you know. 99 plus percent of all orders to go into the market will never trade and in fact won't even be alive for for you know more than a second um so under those sorts of circumstances i I was talking to a guy uh and he was you know everyone knows what those stats are he was quoting them he was like okay so basically a hundred percent of the market's activity is speculative activity so if the if the edge users leave the marketplace it doesn't matter because that's a you know point oh, oh whatever percent of actual order flow, and so the market could basically just play games with itself. Never, <laughs> and and he, I was like, yeah, but like, where do you think the money comes from? He's like, what is it like? It's just, it's just that's what the ge- it's just a game to play but, with each other. <laughs> but that's and and in a way, I think that the speculation in markets and and how those things go is is one of the big flaws in the system because people get away from remembering that at some point somewhere there's actually a thing that is involved with this we've talked a a lot about a lot of different things and i there are a couple of things i want to make sure that we get into before we finish up and one of them is the idea that that you touched on earlier that that economists solved the problem quote unquote wink wink nudge nudge say no more say no more uh of, of saying that markets are totally efficient and 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 they're just that that's how they are obviously we've just spent more than 30 minutes talking about how they aren't uh, uh uh really efficient and and how they could be made more 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 that way talk to me a little bit about how we can actually blend theory and practice and make our lives better what do we do how do we how do we put that to work for ourselves so this is a place where i think that 
recreational computational math, which is what I'm what I'm into, is a real potential game changer for humanity and something that a lot more people should find out about and get into because effectively so computation gives us a window into those kinds of things in a way that gives us the tools of mathematics and the ability to actually build these structures using computers in ways that we can actually interact with Mm -hmm. so while it is certainly true that people are not primarily driven by economic rational behavior. It is also certainly true that having your businesses operating at a supply-demand cross point is to the advantage of those businesses in the immediate and long term. And so finding your, your economy near the matching of desire and capacity is a much, much better deal than, say, what the Eastern Bloc decided to do in the post-war era of just doing whatever Stalin thinks should be happening and then getting killed when that inevitably failed. (laughs) Uh, I I mean, so the the goal, I I think, as you're saying, is although we might not act rationally all the time, to endeavor to, to do so would would be much more beneficial than not it would it would and then the other thing is while people are certainly free to be as idiosyncratic as they'd like in their personal lives um what commodities are doing by creating these uniform quality blocks is creating a a generic interest on each side Mm -hmm. of supply and demand and so as we figure out how to properly negotiate commodity production and transport and consumption uh, and figure out how to commoditize more of economic activity, we get to the point where we can have more small businesses that are doing idiosyncratic things that happen to work well or just are what some hobbyist wants to do or whatever and integrate them into a broader picture that isn't subject to sudden and catastrophic failure because one guy decides to go off the rails and he's in charge of all the oil west of the Mississippi. Right. Yeah. So you've you've had some trouble uh, so, you know, talking about actual problems, you've had some trouble with the U.S. Patent Office. Tell me a little bit more about that. So the the normal sort of patent two step is that you your lawyer puts together this thing that essentially claims the entire universe, right? And then, as sort of a sideline, it mentions whatever you're actually interested in patenting. And so the patent office, whose job it is to find problems will basically say, well, you know, you're not allowed to patent the universe, but this other thing is probably fine. So you sort of give them something to complain about. And then they're like, okay, that's the thing. And I did my due diligence. And then you take the thing that you actually want to patent and you make it affect, you make the universe a subclause of that. So that sort of builds the biggest fence that you can possibly build. And that's the entire point of the the patent. You don't want somebody to be able to, you know, make a wheel out of a different substance and then violate your patent and go on. I had been talking to my my attorneys and 
this is highly technical and I'm basically inventing it all as I'm going along. So I'm sort of the only expert on earth in this stuff. And, and they had put language in there and I was sort of very stressed. That's specific. You know, I, I, that's not what I want the fence to be around. I need it to be larger than that. And so the patent office was basically said, you know, yeah, you can have that. And, and they were like, great, we're in, we're going to fl- flip it in. And I was like, no, 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 I need that to be broadened. And so we kind of stepped on their toes in the opener. After that, they've essentially brought forth a litany of, of statements, which were all destroyed on internal logical grounds. So I was essentially able to take what they said and demonstrate how it contradicted itself and was consequently invalid. <laughs> and they were then forced to say, oh, okay, that's invalid. We're, you know, we're not going to actually raise this objection. Late 2019, they granted me a notice of acceptance. A few weeks after that, my examiner's boss called my attorneys and said, we're probably not going to honor that notice of acceptance. Just letting you know, it looks like it's something's going squiffy over here. So the attorneys contacted me. We sort of waited around, but you've got like 90 days. And if you don't actually execute on it, then the patent's over at that point. So we, you know, I spent the money. We, we applied for the patent. And then about a month later, they gave us the money back and said, yeah, we're not honoring that notice of acceptance. We'll let you know why later, because we haven't actually figured this out yet. They, they brought back another one of these internally contradictory objections, um, where effectively, when you boiled it down, they were claiming that one and two were the same number. I basically freaked out. Uh, there's a lot of very, <laughs> very flam- flammable language between me and my attorneys. Um, <laughs> because I, you know, like, I really yeah. can't take that kind of behavior. And, um, and ultimately, I was able to give my attorneys what they needed to craft a very sharply worded, you know, counter proposal of, you know, prove it basically. Right. So February of last year, uh, they were like, Oh yeah, that's right. When everything we said was total nonsense. Uh, the government says, so uh, have a patent acceptance. So we immediately applied for the patent again. Uh, three weeks later, that notice of acceptance was, was withdrawn. This is something that, as far as I can tell, has never happened before in the history of the United States. <laughs> what? What? On, on, on what? On what grounds? What's the? What? How? Why? Who's in conference. In, in conference with my attorney, the the my examiner and my examiner's boss, from what I've been told, explained that quality control said no, and that they, the examiner, the, like the people that work for the patent office, couldn't understand what quality control's problem was like they that they they couldn't get a coherent response about why it's a no from them so what they put in uh was that it was unpatentable material because if they granted this patent i would have sole access to economic activity in the united states um now, an important thing to understand about this is that they've already acknowledged that there's no prior art of any kind. They they actually had, I believe it was four different attempts to establish prior art. Um, none of them held up in the slightest. And they, well, they're all part of the case. They're all part of the case to acknowledge that these things that either were granted patents or were attempted patents that were eventually abandoned 
are not prior art for my system. Obviously, the, also the entire existing market mechanism would qualify as prior art if my patent covered it, which it doesn't, so it doesn't. So that that is essentially nonsense on its face. Uh, and we are now heading to court to see what a judge thinks about this. My attorneys are optimistic, but still really don't want to give me more than about a 75% chance of success on this one. And we don't know why any of this is happening or what's going on. Somebody who I'm not allowed to talk to or even know who they are that's that's in the patent office has decided that this cannot proceed for reasons which can't be explained to anybody that I'm allowed to talk to. <laughs> I mean, I, I, okay. I mean, I, fine. I, so yeah, yeah, Kafka basically. Yeah. I, I, I for, for, for people who don't know uh, or, or don't understand the, the point the the kind of the bedrock as I see it. And this, I, I don't mean to get into to an Ayn Randian discussion here, but, the bedrock assumption of capitalism is that you own the 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 fruits of your mental labor that that you can monetize that that you can that you can invent something create something and then get the benefit from that and 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 make a profit do something with it do whatever you want with it that it's yours right that it doesn't belong to the state that it doesn't belong to somebody else so the patent system and the copyright system and a couple of other systems for intellectual property uh, to, to secure intellectual property exist to, to make that possible. And our system of being able to patent something or copyright something, and then for a fixed period of time, get the benefits of that before the patent expires, the copyright needs to be renewed or whatever the, the length of, of the, the, the time frame is, that, that, that it's yours, that, that, that you have it. But if they won't let you have it, <laughs> if, if, if they go, this is new, this is different, nobody's ever thought of this, that, that meets all the things, right? You, obviously, you can't, can't copy somebody else's idea that somebody else has already said, this is my thing and I've done it. But it, it, it meets all the standards. This is new, this is different, this is whatever. It's specific enough that will let you have the thing. Uh, but no. Uh, fascinating conversation. I have a couple of questions. We're coming to the end here that I, that I ask everybody. And the first of which, and these can be general or very specific to your niche, what do you think the biggest fallacy is that everybody buys into, but that's actually total hogwash, that's just way overrated? I think the largest fallacy that we've bought into is actually the Enlightenment. The the decision to rest the legitimacy of our systems on reason was based on a sort of Aristotelian platonic view of what logic was and what it could and couldn't do. And between Gödel and Turing, we have determined completely different understandings of what logic is and is capable of. And as a result, our institutions, whether they be governments, religions, businesses, uh, I think are very much on the ropes and, uh, and, and we need to re-engage with our understanding of how to live and exist uh, in the understanding of what computers can and, and cannot do, and consequently what imagination can and cannot do. Yes. So on the flip side, what is the most underrated concept that people overlook? What are we missing? 
I think we're missing the wonder of of the universe. Basically, our society is is sort of so driven by the the instincts of the the sort of tribal creatures that we are to to find fame points and coordinate ourselves around those people uh, that mm-hmm. in a mass communication environment the the people that wind up dominating in society are are basically salespeople who yes. who aren't the worst human beings who have ever existed i mean it's not they're not all cannibal serial killers um but they also aren't contributing across the the board and so we have this kind of concept of this is successful we should replicate what's successful but what makes societies work, particularly industrial and now post-industrial computational societies working, is for an incredible profusion of specialists to be able to work together to their general benefit. And so in that case, it's 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 actually particularization and getting more local and getting sort of more deep into the weeds of whatever corner of reality happens to be seen in front of you and finding ways for the network to be robust enough to support people's flights, individual and personal flights of fancy, not just sort of going to the rock concert. And, and yes, those guys are more creative than you are, but it, it sort of doesn't matter because the crowd has more brains in them than the band does. Uh, and so finding ways to, to recover that wonder and do that exploration ourselves um, is, is paramount to being able to actually thrive and, and frankly, even survive uh, the technology capacity that we now have. There you go. There you go. Noah, thank you so much for joining me, folks. If you want to know more about Noah, you can check out his website at coredisc.com. Find him on LinkedIn and check out videos explaining his work. Links to everything and more are in the description as always. And until next time, I'm Andrew Wallace, and we don't have a problem. We've got an opportunity.